Welcome to this episode of DEI Conversations with Samir and Jen. In this podcast series, we aim to highlight changemakers that are doing amazing work around diversity, equity, inclusion in city building. My name is Jennifer Kahn, Vice President of Inclusive Diversity at Ellis Dawn, and also the Chair of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Reconciliation Council at ULI Toronto. And I'm Samir Patel, Vice President at Tate Economic Research and past co-chair of the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Reconciliation Committee at ULI Toronto. We hope you enjoy this podcast episode as we learn about the opportunities and challenges facing the city building professionals and our industry. In today's episode, we will be speaking to Cheryl Case, who is a founder and principal at CP Planning and an early career Canadian urban leader at the University of Toronto School of Cities. Cheryl's full bio will be included in our show notes to learn more about the speaker's background, please visit our website at toronto.uli.org. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and telling us a bit about what you're involved with these days? Hi, uh, really great to be here. So I am the founder and principal urban planner of City Planning, and I am also the early career Canadian urban leader honored by University of Toronto School of Cities. So at the moment, I'm working on a couple, uh, quite a few projects. So I think my home base project will be the work I'm doing in Little Jamaica. Specifically, right now, I'm focused on Oakwood One, uh, that neighborhood, supporting the Oakwood One community organization to deliver what we're calling the Tenant Solidarity Program. And I think I can probably talk more about that later, um, but really excited about the work we're doing there. And this is a continuation of the Black Pages of Eglinton project that I completed uh, last year. I'm looking at addressing systemic anti-black racism and how to improve access to space and cultural opportunities in Edmonton West. In addition to working with Jamaica, I'm also doing work with the Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative. This is a nationwide project where we're collaborating between Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal to explore and to provide evidence of what is needed to achieve a balanced supply of housing. So really excited about uh, work done there. I'm the co-chair of knowledge mobilization. So um, you might be seeing some information coming out in, I'd say maybe July, August from the collaborative. So in addition to those key housing projects, I'm doing a couple of the things that I'm also really interested in and that are focused on housing. So I actually started up exploring the development of a social enterprise that prioritizes building affordable housing in missing middle neighborhoods. So folks probably know me as uh, a co-editor of um, House Divided, How the Missing Middle Will Solve Toronto's Affordable Housing Crisis. So I didn't want to end there in terms of, you know, doing being a researcher and explaining the history of systemic discrimination and uh, land use planning and in single family exclusive neighborhoods. I wanted to build solutions. So I'm really excited about Partner uh, being the leading force to help prepare some solutions for helping marginalized people actually build affordable housing in their neighborhoods. And so maybe just to cap off on my other affordable housing project, I'm actually applying for funding support from the Housing Supply Challenge. So I think it'd be best for me not to say too much, or maybe I should say more, right? Trying to get some support from the listeners. But I'm really excited about Housing Supply Challenge, actually. It's looking to better resource and, and scale, scale and replicate work I'm doing in Little Jamaica. So instead of, you know, having this one neighborhood 
being supported to address challenges and build connections and build affordable housing, um, can we have neighborhoods across Toronto, um, neighborhoods in Peel, in Hamilton, Ottawa, York, Kitchener, Waterloo, all these neighborhoods that have an LRT, building capacity, building connections and sharing knowledge. Um, it's a lot of great stuff actually that's happening in Ottawa that I learned about because I went there and I listened to people that I can, you know, bring back to Toronto and, and, and this network approaches what I'll be applying for funding for the Houses Supply Challenge. So I guess, you know, in September, we'll know whether or not this effort has been successful. That's like the, I guess, the bulk chunk of what I do, but I also do some other projects as well. There's absolutely no doubt, Cheryl, ever since the first day that we've met, you've always been on the go trying to create the change that you want to see for city building. And you've, you've never shied away from that work and effort. So thank you for all that you're doing to continue to bring this to the table and use your platform to bring others to the table as well. Um, if I could take a couple steps back, actually, and ask you the work that you're doing, either at CP planning or the housing challenge or um, kind of your work in general. Where did that come from? Where did that start for you? What motivated you to do this work as a planner, now as a founder of CP Planning? What drives you to do what can be very challenging work? Yeah, I mean, whenever I talk about what's my origin story, like how did I get into this? I always start with snack program. When I was in kindergarten, we had in like in grade one or so, we had snack program. And I was like, the kids were like, I want to help. I want to give carrots out to all the classrooms and whatnot. So I was always like excited to help people. Like that's really what it comes down to. Um, and so I've been able to, through those, and SNAP program, by the way, for folks who are not aware of it, SNAP program was a funded program that was operated through the Toronto District School Board, where funding was provided to lower income neighborhoods to help provide kids with snacks so that they didn't have to go to school hungry. So I guess was cultivating my leadership and my proactive approach to helping people through these types of programs. And so I carried that out into my high school years. And I remember in high school, we had, I was in a geography course and that's where I learned about urban planning. That's where I learned that the way that we design our cities impacts our pull and draw on environmental resources and our output of pollutions and pollutants. And so that's what motivated me to go into planning because of its influence on the environment. And then also it's really, um, dynamic role in solution making. Like we are the, at the center point of conversations between government, private sector, nonprofit, academia, all of that stuff. And so I'm really proud to say in my practice, I actually do fulfill that vision that I had of engaging with all these different sectors, right? Like I'm working with the city of Toronto and higher levels of government as well. And you know, I'm a professor at University of Waterloo and I'm be through my position at the University of Toronto, hopefully also doing some more teaching here in my own city as well. Um, so that's that's really what got me started. Awesome. Thank you for that. But Cheryl, I was wondering, do you sort of, do you feel optimistic about the future of Toronto? Uh, or does it does it vacillate on some days they're pessimistic, other days you feel better? Yeah. So I would say that like I'm very passionate about what I do. And I'm very cheerful to surround myself who are also passionate about what they do. Right. So the only way forward is to wor work with other people who are also working on moving forward. And so I'm very fortunate to be uh, again surrounded by people who are doing that work. And so I know that as I continue down this path, we'll be able to make progress, right? And the more people who join us in that walk forward, the more progress we'll make. So 
definitely would say that one of my jobs is to help inspire people who maybe aren't doing the work right now or doing as much as they would like and helping them to be a part of this movement, right? So building with people who are already walking and then helping to grab other people along the way, because that's the only way we can actually achieve the future that we all hope and desire to see. And do you feel in sort of the past, I guess, three or four years that the momentum is picking up, not only just in terms of optimism or being able to to actually find real solutions to the problems, but uh, but also in terms of just more interest in planning, uh, clearly the affordable housing issue is front and center and the uh, planners are at the forefront of that. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of, let's say organizations in the planning world start to have internal conversations around how we can do more. Um, and that's really exciting to see. Um, I do know that we definitely need more resources in this space. And that's why, if I'm honest, why, like, with the health supply challenge, I'm going for the big money. I'm not going to be asking them for 200000 400000 I'm asking for as much money as I can, as I can like, sustainably manage within my corporation and with the leadership that I have assembled to help support me. Because this is, Sean Gettin told me himself, the program that I'm working on of the Housing Support Challenge is something that we needed 20 years ago. So if we needed it 20 years ago, I can't ask for $200,000 to implement it today. We have to catch up on all this ex- last time. So I've done the budgeting for the project and it's all there. But um, again, like these not like planning firms are doing this work, but we need to accelerate that. And the only way to accelerate that, to give people the opportunity to really invest their time and for it to be sustainable is we need a huge influx of cash, right? So people have the time to do the work. So um, it's really great to see, again, the planning sector doing this work, but we need to really make sure that we're funding the work so it can happen quick because the pace, let's say that the pace that we're building affordable housing right now is slower than the pace of affordable housing being lost, right? So we have to really invest a lot. Like the slow moving process is happening because our system and our structures were never really built to address these issues. And so we're just now building that capacity to address these issues. So I'm really hoping that through the Health Supply Challenge, I can really hope to accelerate some of this process that is happening and that, again, planning firms have been investing in. I love the idea that we have to actually put aside resources, whether it's people, money, time, whatever it is, to focus your attention on what you're trying to achieve. And I've often heard the idea in regards to DNI in general that you know, people are looking for that quick fix. They're looking for us to change right on the dime, not really acknowledging the fact that some of the things that we're dealing with today have been in place for centuries. And so I guess my question to you, Cheryl, is how do we circumvent that? I mean, knowing that it can't be a quick fix, knowing that we're trying to redesign centuries worth of inequity and systems that benefit a few, where do we start? And, and how do we kind of get everyone on that path? Yeah, so I'd say that recent boom of Black-led organizations that are designed to trust Black interests was incredibly needed, right? It really comes down to, like, we do need to create new social structures and new opportunities for people to practice their leadership and to create change, right? Because, as you're saying, these structures and organizations that we have currently, they've been around for generations and for hundred years, right? So they have kind of a culture and a social structure that says that this, what's happening right now is more or less okay, right? So the only way that you can start to really challenge that and to also help motivate those structures to adapt to 
start serving the actual needs that we have is by developing these other social organizations that can develop their own power and establish and communicate their authority on the topic to start having negotiations. It's like, okay, right now you're the only organization that has quote unquote authority on this topic. Well, now we're going to have this other relation that has a community around it. That's actually saying, you know, you've been doing this for all this time, but we are over here saying that you also need to be looking at this and this is important. And so when you start building other organizations, it becomes really hard to ignore these truths. And so to bring in this human rights is a discrimination wherein the harms and the processes that are causing harms are um, kind of passed on as normal. It's normal that people are being paid $15 an hour, even though $25 an hour is what you need to actually afford rent. The only way we can challenge that quote unquote norm is by having other people expressing loudly and with authority expressing, actually, no, it's $25 an hour is the appropriate minimum wage because again, rent is so high, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to ask the question. It might be a little controversial, but I think I'm going to ask it anyway. In your opinion, Cheryl, when we talk about inclusive engagement, when we talk about diversity and inclusion and community building and affordable housing, do you view diversity and inclusion or inclusive engagement as a win-win or a win-lose? Meaning that in some cases, people are of the belief that if you, let's say, pay minimum wage $25 an hour, raised from 15 or whatever it is right now, that means that money has to come from somewhere else. And so to do this, that means that you're taking me away from this. Is that how you see diversity inclusion, where for me to break down the norms and create equity that we're taking you away from something else? Or do you see it as just the right thing to do? And, you know, what are your, what are your opinions there? Yeah. I mean, we have taxes for a reason, right? The economy is in a free market without any regulations to incentivize actions that we need results in oceans burning, right? So, and you know, as the ocean did burn, right? We remember last year, we had burning oceans last year. It's not about taking and putting over here. We have to make sure, of course, everybody is able to have their needs met and in a social structure, of course, the more responsibility you have over an organization, the more money you will make, right? Because that's just how it works. But people all across the spectrum should have their needs met. And this is what a community does, right? A community does this for one another because I mean, we should care about each other and have empathy for one another, right? And so I don't think it's about taking and putting one place. It's because we've seen stats about how, for example, people in the billion dollar bill class, they're making more money than ever before. While some people are making less money than ever before, the top 1%. We've been hearing all this stuff. So there is money that's in the system. It's just not being distributed very well. So there's a whole conversation we can talk about in terms of governance and government. One thing I'm really excited about as well to see is that the philanthropy sector is also having this conversation. So it encouraged folks to take a look at, for example, the justice fund. And this is also a good example of showing the importance of having other organizations come together, build a good community, and then being able to talk to these legacy institutions. So the Justice Fund was started by a good friend of mine, Yuna Sassan. It's like one of the greatest funding partners of the Justice Fund actually is Noah Forty Shabib, who people might know if they listen to Drake. 
And they're talking about how in the philanthropy sector, they're hoarding actually a lot of money is just being kept in the bank and not being actually deployed to start building solutions. And that, again, gets back to that thing I described earlier in the beginning, where it's like, we're making these positive movements and degradation is happening a lot quicker than we're making these positive movements. So if we want to actually have sustainable change, we need to get going. So what's the point of having all this money in the bank when we actually need it to increase sustainable change after we've made progress and you can get back to that trickle down and trickling process, but we need to make a big jump in our social structures right now. So I hope that answers the question. Sure. Where do you think, and we, we've made the most meaningful change in the past two or three years. And uh, where do you think that the real challenges lie ahead? Is it education? Is it just money? Is it willingness to do, or is it even more stepping back within our industry? Do you think there is a real acceptance and realization that systemic racism and discrimination exists? And because if you can't accept that, it, it's hard to move forward. Yeah. I'd say that the most notable change I've noticed in the last two years is the ability to talk about race. I remember when I was writing my chapter on women, I was doing a lot of research. And I came across a story about a black woman. And then I thought about, do I enter the story about the black woman into this chapter about women? And I made the decision to exclude her race in her storyline. I just said the woman. And the reason why is because I thought to myself, well, if I describe it as a black woman, would white people care? Maybe they wouldn't actually value the storyline at all. And they would kind of separate it out. Like, oh, this is a black person issue. This is not a woman issue, or this is not a white woman issue. So I decided to not include it. So that it would be easier to accept. And so now I know I would never have to do that again, because there's a very clear public acknowledgement on race. Although I don't have to do it because of, I guess the way that my business works, I'm specifically about addressing these types of issues. And there are funded opportunities that, that are helping me also to address these types of issues. So that one's the thing that's changed the most. So Cheryl, do you, do you think that the development community and professional community at large within the city building industry has accepted that systemic racism and systemic discrimination exists? Mm -hmm. I'd say that some have, and I guess you would say a spectrum of how accepting they are, because it's like you could accept and not do much about it. You can accept and do some things about it. You can accept and do quite a bit about it. I'm really excited to see that ULI is like on the further end of the spectrum. I'm really excited about all they've been doing to address systemic racism and inequality. There are definitely people who have not done anything. And I think some people who are very actively actually trying to fight against progress, or they might try to describe themselves as passively fighting against it, but it's the same thing at the end of the day, if you're denying voices from being expressed. Um, yeah, I think that's enough of an answer for that question. I certainly can't speak on behalf of the planning and developing world, even though I, I do work for a large GC. In my experience, and Cheryl, I don't know if you agree or not, but I actually don't think that there has been a widespread acceptance and acknowledgement that systemic racism exists or that in some cases, worse cases, that even racism exists. Like, I think the world is still going through this slow awakening of my experience, your experience, somebody else's experience is different than others. And I think that most people want to say, all you got to do is come in and do good work. 
not really acknowledging that if good work is the end result that we're looking for, the outcome, there are barriers that are in some people's way more so than others for us to be able to achieve good work. And then the question then becomes, is the definition of good work the same for everyone? Um, mm. Very different intersection, intersection. And I think the answer is no. And I think that although we are starting to see progress, we are starting to be able to talk about race and gender and sexual orientation and personal disabilities with a little more fluency, there is still a ton of work to be done. And still, I think a ton of convincing to those in positions of authority and power that, hey, there, there's still a problem here. And the system that has got you to where you are is not going to be the same for everybody else. And we don't want it to be that way anymore. Yeah, no, I think in terms of the spectrum, I think most people are in that, like maybe somewhat awareness, but not really doing much about it stage, right? Like they don't really want to change their business practices, which is an integral part. If you want to actually create change, you have to change how you do business. You can't really just donate money away to like, oh, I care. I'm going to put some money over here and then maintain your business practice, which is, let's say like a $7 million business. So the $7 million is still maintaining the system and you're going to give away $100,000 to fix the system. Like this is still over trumping your little investment in terms of that comparison of scale. Um, so yeah, like I think that's why it's so important that people who are on this side of doing the active work, um, coming together and building the case and doing the work. Cause sometimes building the case is not really about, in my opinion, about providing evidence. It's not about that. It's about doing the work, building, it's like be the economy you want to see in the world, right? Like doing the work and then that will help to influence other policies and other practices itself. Cause I honestly don't believe education helps building the economy to reflect the economy you want to see. That's what we need to do. And that's going to take some real change. And I think that often in this type of work, we think about, and I've heard this many times, education is key. Well, it's not. Education is one step. It's one piece of the puzzle, but action is key. Policy change is key. Reflection is key. Like there's so many different pieces of this that you can't just oversimplify the solution to be one thing. It has to be money. And the people mm -hmm. doing this work, I always like to say, need to stick together. Because the people who are moving and trying to advance DEI and reconciliation are still in the minority of the majority of the group. So if we can't support each other, and I love the idea of like bringing other people to the table and giving shout outs to those who are doing the work and surrounding yourself with that community, because for, I think, our own mental health, for our own ability to become more resilient, to push through some of the barriers that we come across, you can't do that by yourself. There's yeah. just no way. So I applaud you and I'm happy to have you in, in my circle as well. Well, well thanks, Jen. Great to have you in my circle. Well, I, I think we're sort of, we're coming to the end uh, of our of our time, Cheryl. And I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this because uh, clearly you have a lot going on. And uh, and so it's I think it's going to be really helpful for the listeners to uh, to see your perspective and to hear your perspective on the challenges that we're facing, especially within the affordable housing area. Uh, I think we, we sort of, we want to finish on a, on a, on a highlight or an optimistic. And if somebody were to, if a family member or a friend were to come visit you for the first time in Toronto, wh where would you take them? Where would you, 
what area either reflects you or what area where you're the proudest of within the city and uh and why would you take them there i mean if it's my family member i have to take them to little jamaica because like this is this is where i'm spending all of my time and also it's a really amazing neighborhood like that's one of the things i did for the project is i walked the entire neighborhood from keel to allen and i walked into all the shops and that's where i met benny boo who's an amazing African seamstress who just makes the most incredible clothes. I actually bought a jacket from her, and every time I wear it out, I get someone who puts me on it. Um, and they have a beautiful ravine in the neighborhood, so it's actually a really gorgeous neighborhood. And you know, in the neighborhood we're working on establishing a land trust, and then like, hey, let's look at the land trust. You know, I can do, can do a little show and give them a little tour. So I think I would say Little Jamaica would be the neighborhood. So that would be, and for folks who maybe are not familiar. Edmonton West between Keel and Allen in Toronto. Great. I, I, I concur. It's, it's so dynamic. It's uh, and there, there's a lot of interest on the street, unfortunately under a bit of stress, uh, however, but I feel like there's a lot of, uh, eyeballs and a lot of, uh, effort being placed on how, how to maintain that. And at least a recognition of, of the value streets like little Jamaica areas like, uh, Kensington market play in, in the city in terms of its its outlook and its profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we're, we're definitely fighting our hardest there. Thank you so much, Shira, for your time today and sharing all of the great work that you're doing and for, of course, doing all that great work. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and hopefully our listeners are taking away something that they can do as well to get involved in that movement. So thanks for your time and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Jen. Uh, and thank you so much as well, Samir. I really appreciated this conversation. It was really uh, great to have this discussion. We feel like we've been working together the last year or so, so it's good to even just catch up on. Thank you again so much and to you a lot.